0: Welcome back to Crosspoint. Let's pray together. Father, we're gathered in your presence with the assurance of your love. Help us, Lord, to understand who you are. Help us to hear your word. May what we hear today give us hope and confidence in you. May we become more like your son Jesus for having spent time together gathered as your church. Help me, Lord. I I always need your help. I can't draw a breath without you, but today I'm especially aware of my limitations as we begin a new journey of learning and hearing your word. Help me, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Have a seat. Grab your Bible today more than most days. You'll need the notes that have been provided either in your bulletin or in our church app. Uh, yes, we're that trendy. We have a Crosspoint Church app, okay? If you'll go wherever you get your apps and just look for Crosspoint HB, uh, there's there's roughly 10,000 churches named Crosspoint in the United States, okay? So make sure, uh, make sure you get the one that's in Huntington Beach, Crosspoint HB, and there you will have an app that will deliver the lyrics of the songs we're going to sing week by week, the sermon notes as well, and I'd like you to have those notes handy. Because today, more than most days, you'll, you'll need them. If you have your Bibles, keep them ready. Most of the scripture that I'm going to use today is already found in your notes. That's one of the values of the app. If you're here for the first time, my name is Bruce Garner. I'm the senior pastor at Cross Point, and today is, a, is an unusual day. We are going to start for several weeks on a different kind of journey together through God's Word, and I want to explain on the front side why it's going to look and sound a little bit different. Generally speaking, what I do is I pick a book of the Bible, and actually we usually pick two or three books of of Scripture or sections of Scripture at once, and I work my way through it. We've been, for instance, in the last several years, we've nearly completed the Gospel of Luke, we've studied the entire book of Colossians and Philippians and the book of James. And to have variety in the things that we're hearing from God's Word, we'll usually do two or three books at once in these long series, and I'll take a paragraph or a story or a specific section of a book of the Bible and teach through that. Today's going to sound very different. For the next several weeks, we're going to do something different, and I want you on the front side to understand why. Today, we're going to begin a study of Christian doctrine, or if you prefer that term, of Christian theology. And as soon as somebody says doctrine or theology, people immediately get nervous. How many of you already feel nervous because I use the word doctrine or theology? Okay? Okay. How many of you are concerned that I'm going to start teaching my opinions rather than the Bible? Thank you. Okay. Much kinder in the second service than the first, I might say. Nobody raised their hand, but there was no verbal affirmation or encouragement at all. They just said, start teaching. We'll let you know what we think about it, which should always be the case, by the way. You should always weigh everything you're taught from Scripture. What we're doing differently is we're going to start studying doctrine. Whatever my kids are into, I do a deep dive into those things. That means that I'm always listening to podcasts or reading books or uh, finding things on YouTube that pertain to their interest, and they're very different people than the kind of person God made me to be, so I'm always learning and hearing about different things. One of them is an engineering student, the other one is a soldier, When the older boy started on his path toward military service, I started doing a deep dive into the United States Army because I had a fatherly interest in understanding what they were going to do to my beloved child. And I was surprised to learn that the Army has a whole section of its operations, and you can, please don't do it now, but you could Google it and find it very easily. There is a whole section of the United States Army dedicated to doctrine, and they actually use that word. What is army doctrine? They explain army doctrine are the foundational principles by which the United States Army conducts its operations in the interest of the nation. In other words, at a very high level in the leadership of our military, and it's not the army alone, it's every branch. They have given a great deal of thought and set down in writing their core convictions. How will they operate? What is out of bounds and what is within bounds? What are we allowed to do in the service of the nation and what things are forbidden, maybe even criminalized, even forbidden by law with severe punishments if we go beyond our own core principles, our foundational ideas? I was reassured when I read that. Because something as strong as the United States military better have some core beliefs and guiding principles, or we're all at risk. If, for instance, the Marines down at Camp Pendleton, just south of here, decided one day that this would make a nice camp for them, if their doctrine did not forbid it, if our Constitution did not forbid it, This could be a very different place anytime they decided it to be so. The truth is every single person, including you, operates according to doctrine. You may not have identified what your beliefs are. They may just pop out of your heart and mind at strange times and in surprising ways, but every single one of us has some operating principles, some basic beliefs about ourselves, about reality, about family that we use to guide our lives. The study of Christian doctrine is just the study of biblical teaching. If you have your notes... Doctrine just means teaching. That's literally what that word means. The study of biblical doctrine is the study of biblical teaching. Here's a simple way to think about it. When we study doctrine, it is truth arranged by topic. In other words, what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? What does the Bible tell us about mankind? What does the Bible tell us about life or death or family? The Bible does not address every topic and every idea in life. For instance, it won't tell you how to rebuild the engine on your Ford. Okay, that is simply not part of the Bible's concern. But everything, the Bible by its own witness, has given you a knowledge of God and the knowledge of the truth that God knows in everything that matters to your life and your development, your relationship with God himself. The reason doctrine is so important and so helpful is it helps you very quickly learn in a way that no other form of teaching can what the Bible teaches about any given thing that the Bible talks about. For instance, if I were to start reading my Bible and make a note every time the Bible speaks about humanity... I would be reading, and I'm going to show you, in the 27th verse of the entire Bible, God says something huge about humanity. If the truth that God reveals about humanity is believed and practiced by people worldwide, many of the problems that afflict our country and are tearing the world apart right now would disappear in a moment. God who made human beings knows exactly who we are. He knows the best way for us to live. What an idea that the creator had a purpose for his creation. The trouble is, if I just start reading in the Bible, I'm going to find that it is true and that it tells me the truth, but it's teaching what the Bible says about all these different things is scattered across the entire Bible. So if I wanted to learn everything the Bible said about humanity, for instance, are we a cosmic accident or are we a special creation? Those are two very different ideas and they're both present in the United States right now. Some leading intellectuals, some very, very popular people on YouTube who have untold millions of views will tell you, you are merely super intelligent stardust. That is all you are. You are a cosmic accident. There is no particular reason for you to be here. In fact, it is wildly unlikely that you're here in the first place. Well, ideas have consequences. If you actually believe that you are merely stardust, I'm convinced that has some long-range implications, and we're living through some of those consequences right now. The Bible says something very different. So if I were a theologian, if I were a student of doctrine, I would start reading my Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and the first time mankind is mentioned, the first time humanity is mentioned, I would make a note in my notebook and say, okay, humanity is mentioned for the first time in this verse, this is what the Bible says about humanity, I'm going to write down what the Bible teaches about humanity, and then I keep reading. Two chapters later, I discover that humanity as a whole is mentioned again. Something else different is said than the first time, so I write that down. Do you have any idea how long that would take? One quick way to learn what the Bible says is to study theology. The little book that we've been promoting... We've been asking you to study on your own and to study in small groups. It's not at all intimidating. Pastor Jim studied his way through it when he was only 17 years old. He found it life-changing then. It is life-changing now. It's about 89 pages. I'm going through it with someone who just came to faith in Christ, and it's putting all the pieces together for him. That's the use of it. Now, if you want the version on steroids... This is a textbook called Christian Theology by Dr. Erickson. It was one of my seminary textbooks, and it's all here, just at much greater depth. You don't have to be a college student. You don't have to go back to college to understand what the Bible says. God, believe it or not, communicated And like all good communicators, his intention was to make himself known and to make himself clear. I'm just indicating to you that there are resources that will organize by topic what the Bible teaches. That is the value of such books. So this morning what I want to do is just begin this week, this teaching expanded upon contact, I found out in the first service. I'm going to try to expose and explode a few myths about the study of doctrine. Here's some of them that I've heard all my life. I don't want to study doctrine. I want to study the Bible. I don't want, I don't want or need anybody to teach me. The Bible says that God himself will guide me. If I study theology, I'm afraid it'll make me very proud and very arrogant because I've met some seminary students and some seminary graduates who are absolutely insufferable. That last one might have some truth to it. So we're going to study together how to learn about God without becoming a bit of a jerk. And what is it exactly that makes the study of doctrine, makes some people so arrogant and so hard to deal with. If you understand God and love him for himself and actually know who he is, it's absolutely life-changing. But I'm telling you all this to set a foundation, because if you've been attending this church for years, the teaching I'm going to do right now is going to sound very different from what we do on a normal Sunday. It's only a short series, and it's a series designed to teach you not everything you need to know, but the basics about a few core biblical ideas, and more importantly, to set you on a path of lifelong learning, not for the sake of knowledge but for the sake of knowing who God is and loving him for who he is. The greatest thing that could possibly happen to you is to know for yourself who God is, to know that he speaks to you, to love him in return in some small measure of how much he loves you. Jesus himself said that that was eternal life. I'm going to show you in a moment how much God said it mattered to know him. But unlike a normal Sunday, I won't be starting at verse 1 and moving through verse 9. I'm going to be in various parts of the Bible to show you biblical ideas. Not because I'm picking and choosing for its own sake, but because I'm trying to bring together a few of the things that the Bible teaches about every idea that we're going to explore. Does this make sense so far? Do you feel like you've been re-enrolled in high school or college already? I hope not. But if you're finding this challenging, let me encourage you to persevere. We do students a disservice when it comes to learning the things of God and learning who God is because beginning at the junior high level, they grapple with heavy concepts that have consequences and subjects that are much harder to understand than the knowledge of God himself. I didn't say deeper and I didn't say more important. But many of the subjects that our students with, grapple with in high school every day are far more complicated than the simple things that God has actually made clear in his word. We're not going to go into the weeds. We're not going to major on the minors. We're just going to spend a few weeks exploring the idea of doctrine and a few basic biblical truths. Today, all I want to do is expose a myth, and that myth is this you can't really know God because everybody in the world is just guessing. You may not have said those words, you may not have heard those exact words, but much of contemporary thinking regarding God starts with the idea that everybody's just making it up. Everybody has inherited an idea of God. Everybody's idea of God is at least a little bit mistaken. And nobody can know for sure, so you shouldn't claim to know anything for certain about God. You, certain, you certainly shouldn't be certain, as contradictory as that is. The way that idea is often explained is like this. There's a parable told to illustrate it. Because everything in this culture teaches. Commercials have ideas. YouTube videos have ideas. The memes that you send back and forth in your group chats on your smartphone, all of those things have ideas. And I've known people who have been, frankly, politically radicalized and have ended up acting like very different people than the way the people they were their entire lives. And it all started with something simple like a joke or a story or a parable or a meme or a picture that started them on a path because their beliefs changed. Here's a common parable that is told to make the point that nobody can know God for certain. It's a story about several blind men. And the blind men in the parable... Unknowingly, because they're blind, they can't see what they're dealing with, encounter an elephant. And one of the men ends up, without knowing it, at the back end of the elephant, so he reaches out, and with his hand, he grabs the elephant's stubby little tail and says, this is something like a snake or a branch from a tree. The other man is at the front of the elephant and he gets both hands around the thick trunk. He says, no, no, you're you're quite wrong. This is much more like a fire hose or a very thick vine in the jungle. The third man runs into the side of the elephant and putting both hands out and stretching his hands across the elephant's massive side says, you're both mistaken. This, whatever this is, it's much more like a wall. And the point of that parable is that nobody should claim to know every anything because we all have different perspectives. Have you encountered that parable or that little teaching somewhere? Here's the truth of the matter. They're all wrong. It's not a vine, it's not a fire hose, and it's not a wall. What is it? It's an elephant. What is needed is a knowledge of the truth. Someone with sight could immediately tell them what is actually happening. So it is a fallacy. It's a mistaken idea to believe that because not everybody knows God, nobody can. And everybody's just guessing. The biblical truth, the central idea actually of the entire Bible is this. God has acted in history to be known. God has worked in history. The God who eternally is there has acted in history. God has not been silent. He has created. He has spoken. And in his final and best and most sacrificial act to make himself known, having created us and having spoken to us, he actually came among us. He sent his son so that we could know him. Where do we find these ideas in the Bible? Let me show you just two places. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's a big book. The reason studying doctrine is a shortcut is because it is so big. The Bible has 1189 chapters. It was written in three different languages. It took about 40 people 1400 years to write it. God himself, of course, is its author. But in all of the things that God said, I want you to notice in the very first chapter, in the 27th verse, God tells us where we came from. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This third line is very important. Male and female, he created them. Number one Bible reading tip, slow down. If you were reading this for the first time, You might want to read that several times and think carefully. See if you can articulate in your own language what you're being told. According to scripture, you are not stardust. You are not an unlikely cosmic accident. You are actually a specially, purposefully made creation. God created Man, It says in Genesis 1 verse 27. He created man in his own image. For emphasis, in the image of God, he created him. And something very important that would clear away a lot of trouble in contemporary America, male and female, he created them. One of the evils in our society, and it's really in every human heart, it's destroyed or tainted every culture I've ever known and ever studied as a former missionary, is racism. Genesis 127 blows that up. Genesis 127 makes the amazing announcement that there really is truly one race, the human race. God created all human beings and every one of those human beings has worth and dignity and value that is superior to the rest of creation. I'm not reading the entire creation account, but you'll notice if you read it for yourself that when God made human beings, he slowed down and made them in a very special way and our worth, our value, that every human being instinctively through conscience, because that is one of the results of being made by God. Every human being knows that human, being li- that human life matters. You need a great deal of thinking and studying in a very different direction to come to the idea that human life is worthless. No, Genesis 127 says human beings are made in the image of God. And you'd need to read and study a little bit more to know exactly what that means. But that means that you have worth, value, dignity, purpose that is beyond a house cat. That as much as you like your dog, you are inherently, in your essence, very different from the dog no matter how much you happen to love him. And we're not saying that in our family as people who don't like dogs. If anybody says I love you at our house, there's a 65% chance they're actually talking to TJ the dog. Okay, <laughs> a Very, very beloved creature. I once complained about it and it was explained to me that I, he doesn't create the problems that I do in the home. And I thought that was fair and I just moved on. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that is blown up by Genesis 1 verse 27 is misogyny. Just as every human culture has struggled with hatred and based in racial difference or the difference of appearance, almost every human culture has mistreated women from the beginning of the time we study human beings and the way humans interact. You'll notice Genesis one twenty seven announces that both men and women are made in the image of God as you keep reading the Bible and you see the way Jesus treats women so radical so very different from the men of his day you begin to get an even clearer idea of what God thinks of all the women God made but it takes doctrine to thread all those things together why does this matter? Why study Christian doctrine in a focused way? What if it feels a little bit like a classroom? What if it's not as exciting, it's not as inspirational as hopefully we would think church could be? Well, ideas always have consequences. One of the leading bioethicists in the United States teaches at an Ivy League university, and he simultaneously holds two ideas in his mind and presents them through his scholarship. One is the rights of animals. He wants to elevate the rights of animals to make them very similar to the rights of human beings. And at the same time, he believes that any human being can be ethically killed up until about the age of two. Why two? Because most human beings can't, don't have much self-awareness and can't fend for themselves very well in any meaningful way until they're about two years old. So obviously he's not in favor of the mass killing of babies, but he makes a very carefully articulated argument that says if the people who brought the baby into the world, if their life is going to be severely impacted or if in their judgment the life of the baby that was born is not worth living, they could ethically end that life until about the time normally children enter preschool. And that's not a fringe idea. That is one of the premier bioethicists teaching at one of our finest universities the christian idea of worth what has formed not only western civilization but really has changed almost the entire world that human beings have inherent dignity and are worth fighting for and regardless of disability and regardless of difficulty every human life matters and is worth striving and sacrificing for that idea was presented in its most basic form in the 27th verse of this entire Bible. We can know God for certain. The idea I'm trying to develop right now is that we really can know God because God acted in history. And the first thing he did was make us. But he did much more than that. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So if you've noticed, I've taken a big leap forward in the Bible. In Genesis, we were in the first book, and the book of Hebrews, we're almost to the back of the Bible. And I discover that I'm reading a book written to Israelites in the first century. And the author of Hebrews, reflecting on their history, says, long ago, and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, our ancestors, by the prophets, In other words, God was not content merely to make people. God spoke to people. He spoke to them in the very early days of human history. He spoke to them personally. Later, he sent other people to speak on his behalf. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's a major leap forward. That's the Christmas story if you think about it. God spoke to Israel through verbal communication, through the prophets who also wrote. But in these last days, in our own lifetime, is what he's referring to, he has spoken to us by his son, who is Jesus, who is this son of God, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through who also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high did you find those three verses kind of dense One of the things I want to teach you in this different style of teaching we'll be indulging for a few weeks is I want to teach you how to study the Bible for yourself. Those three verses I just read to you in Hebrews are speaking about Jesus, the Son of God. Read them again for yourself and ask yourself, are you being taught anything here about Jesus? Here it is. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a lot. But tell me, tell me a few things those three verses tell you about Jesus. Who is Jesus according to these three verses? He is the son of God. What else? He's the creator. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What did Jesus do while he was among us? That's at the end. What brought Jesus among us? The purifications of sins. He died for sin. Is he still dying for sin? Will he be sacrificed again? No. How do you know? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a lot of biblical ideas just in those three verses. Jesus is the Son of God. He can't be an angel. He can't be another prophet. No. If you parse the language of these three verses, Jesus is God himself. When you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who, by the will of the Father, which is also his own, he died on the cross and rose from the grave, which we just celebrated on Easter, and having completed his work, he is now again majestically enthroned enjoying the same glory that he had with the father from the very beginning. So where are you getting all those ideas just from those three verses? And I'm also thinking of John 17 when Jesus prays to the father and says, "Give me the glory that I had with you before the beginning of the world." Christian doctrine takes all these teachings that is embedded in specific pieces of scripture, it takes it together harmoniously and presents it to the student in a way that is much easier than understand than reading the Bible all the way through by yourself, keeping notes of every idea and every truth that you encounter there. It is not true. The reason it is worth hearing God's word and studying it in a variety of ways is because God has acted in history. He made us, giving us inherent dignity, giving us the ability to relate to him in a special way because he loved us. He not only spoke to us, he actually sent his son after us. But as we begin to learn who God is, here's another idea. Because God has acted to make himself known in history, God's person and God's truth has boundaries. It has boundaries. It has limits. Not everything said about God can be true, and whatever contradicts what God said is false. It's very helpful. This is going to sound so simple. You're, you might have a hard time believing that I'm actually mentioning this in a sermon in a church worship service. But it's good to remember in your journey with God that God is a person. I don't mean that he's a mere human being as you are. I mean that he is a separate being, eternal and uncreated according to what he has explained to us. But he is a person, meaning he has mind, will, and emotions. He has plans just as you are. You're a person because God is a person and God made people in his own image. That means that you can actually have a relationship with God. You can actually be heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, plan-to-plan with God. You may find sometimes that your plans conflict with His. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever tried to talk God into your better ideas? What you're enjoying there is the real give and take of an actual relationship. And because God is a person an eternal person, a holy person, an infinitely superior person to you and to me. But because God is an actual person, there's limits to who he is. You can't say anything about him and have everything be true. Just like yourself. If I could use myself as an example, if you start talking about me, if you know me, and you start talking about me, you can tell somebody else a great deal about me. And as long as you keep it within the limits of who I actually am, you'll be telling them the truth. But if, for instance, you tell them that I'm a grandfather, you'd be wrong. That's no longer me. You must be talking about someone else or there's something about me that you've misunderstood. I'm a dad, but I'm not yet a granddad. If you say that I'm trilingual and I speak Spanish, English, and French, you'd be mistaken. Again, I'm just bilingual. I speak English and Spanish. God, the God who is there, the God who exists, the God who loves and listens and creates and seeing his creation fallen and broken in sin pursues his creation through speaking to them, through being patient with them, through dealing with them, through sending his son to live in their place to bridge the gap of sin and bring them back into the fellowship and the family of God, that God has boundaries, And those boundaries are known primarily through what God has told us about himself in his own words. Many people are talking about God. Many people are talking about Jesus. We may all be mistaken, but we can't all be correct because we're all saying different things. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy, please, chapter 6. Listen to Paul exalt the importance of doctrine. First Timothy chapter 6. This is not in your notes. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm at the end of verse 2. This letter we just opened in the Bible is a letter from Paul to Timothy. It's called a pastoral epistle because Timothy was a close co-worker of Paul. Paul has left Timothy uh, behind to put a... a get a church in shape and teach it the truth and make sure that they have proper leaders and proper teaching among them, listen to Paul here exalt the importance of doctrine. First Timothy chapter 6, the last sentence in verse 2, Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there's a lot there, but Paul has told Timothy, you have been given sound teaching. The sound teaching is in keeping with the person of Jesus. Make sure you teach the right things. And if anybody doesn't want to listen to you, you should know on the front side, if they're rejecting the solid, organized teaching that was handed down to you, you can trust that they have bad character and they're in it for themselves. Have you discovered yet in 21st century America that a lot of people teach the Bible for their own gain? It's true. You can find them in the airwaves every single day of the week. That truth was already existent in the lifetime of Jesus and in the lifetime of the apostles. That's why Timothy is told to pay attention to sound doctrine. In the second letter that Paul wrote him, 2 Timothy chapter 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is back in your notes. Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now that's just two verses, let's study them together. I'm going to read it again, then I'm going to ask you some questions about it. And I'm doing this, not because I'm unwilling to teach. I'm trying to show you, do a little workshop-style thing with you. This might be how I would ask myself questions and try to learn what the Bible is saying tomorrow morning over a cup of coffee if I read this myself in the morning. Paul wrote to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What phrases there, what words or phrases tell you that the faith or the teaching from God is actually a separate thing with its own boundaries? Look at those two verses. What in those two verses tells you that according to Paul, what is said about God, what is said about Christ has limits. Some things are going to be true. Other things are going to be false. You see anything there? A little louder, please. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul uses a word picture and says this truth about Christ, this truth about God is like a treasure that was found. It didn't belong to you. It didn't originate with you, but you have been given something of great value. Hold on to it. There's something else there in the very beginning of the verse. Do you see it? There is a pattern of sound words. In other words, what God has said about himself is not chaotic. It's not random. There is a pattern. There is an order to the things that can be said about God that are found in Scripture. And notice, this isn't, this isn't just learning. This isn't a classroom lecture. This isn't dragging you back into school. All of those things Paul says are in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have put your trust in Jesus. You have love for Jesus just as Jesus loves you. And not only that, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he already lives in you. In other words, this is not something that can be put on a shelf alone. See, that's where a lot of Christians get waylaid. They they get sidetracked. You see a textbook this thick and you say, I don't know who reads that, but it sure isn't me. God didn't make me to sit and read a book like this. A book like this, frankly, is neither necessary for all of us, okay, nor is it something that would be understandable to all of us. Let me tell you what a book like this is, what a sermon or a teaching like this is. The reason it's worth studying God is because God himself is worth knowing and worth loving. If you've ever known a truly wonderful person, if you've ever known someone who is really genuinely down to the molecular level good, you want to know more about them. You want to learn more and more about them. The more you know about them, the more time you want to spend with them. Have you ever had that experience in life? Have you ever looked across a room and said, ooh, who's that? Now, generally speaking, what is drawing people in that situation is not the mind, because they can't see the mind. But people will say, oh, he's cute, she's cute. I want to know who that is. I had that experience years ago at the Dairy Queen on Pacific Coast Highway. More than 30 years ago, a very beautiful blonde girl sat at a dilapidated table inside that Dairy Queen next to a boy. I didn't know who he was, and I didn't particularly care. I found out later that the boy was the girl's boyfriend, but I reasoned between in my own soul and I actually took it to God in prayer that surely they wouldn't be dating for long and that there might be an opportunity for me because the girl I was looking at is my wife. And I knew her family and I knew that our parents had been acquaintances and reasonably good friends. I knew what kind of people she came from and I just had an idea that she was worth knowing. So I married her. By God's grace and through her patience, we're married. We're approaching 30 years of marriage. And because she's actually wonderful, the more I know her, the more I like her, the more I love her. The reason the God who is there has created and spoken and acted by actually sending his son to bring you back into God's family is because the Bible told you the truth. God is not only loving, God is love. And the reason for all this study, the reason we're inviting you into groups, or the reason we're inviting you to get that little book is to spend some time in dedicated, prayerful study, mind-to-mind and heart-to-heart with the God who is there because he is very much worth knowing. If you don't know anyone else in the universe, but you know God, you will have lived a life filled with meaning and filled with beauty and filled with purpose. God says that in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. The last verse we'll look at today. The truth is this, because God is the greatest, the greatest thing you can do is to know him and love him. Because God is holy and because God is just and because God is righteous and because God is love and because these songs we've been singing about God are true, the first song we sang talked about our sins being great, but we sang his mercy is what? His mercy is more. That's a doctrinal belief. How do you know that? Maybe God doesn't have that much mercy for the likes of you. You should probably find out. People ask, is there an unforgivable sin? It's a great question. It's a doctrinal question. Have you possibly committed it? How would you know? Knowing who God is, his character and his actions. In other words, who God is and what God does is the greatest adventure and the greatest knowledge you could possibly have. And I'm not making that up. That's what God said. Look in Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Well, already I'll notice that the Bible is challenging the way people live these days. Because I don't know if you've noticed, people then and now are pretty proud, they boast quite a bit of their wisdom. People who are strong and mighty are quick to make sure that you know it. And oh boy, are people prone to boast about their riches. That's the life of an Instagram influencer. If you know what that is. An Instagram influencer is something our culture has created just in the last few years. This is generally a person, almost always young, invariably beautiful, men and women. Who through pictures and through posts, very quick little carefully curated presentations of their lifestyle present their wisdom, their ability, and especially their wealth. It might just be of a quiet picture sitting in the right kind of car with the right kind of wristwatch, strapped to the left wrist as the strong left hand rests on the right kind of steering wheel. And it usually says something like this, hashtag blessed. (laughs) (laughs) And if you just keep scrolling, you're going to find out they're not so proud and grateful of God. Generally, they're generally proud of themselves. And God says all the way back in Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, culture hasn't changed that much because human nature does not change. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. Garner paraphrase, if you're going to be proud of something, let me tell you what you can be proud of. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our country is torn up. More divided than at any time in my lifetime. And I know it's been worse because we had a civil war in this country where Americans killed each other in huge numbers. Thank God we're not there. I pray we never go back to those terrible days. But even among people who aren't violent, if you listen to the rhetoric and you, listening, you listen to the argument from both sides, what each side is saying is that their political opponents have no love, don't care about justice, and are not righteous. They're unloving, unjust, and unrighteous. They're hateful. They're unjust. And they don't care about right and wrong. That accusation is being hurled in both directions. I want you to hear God explain his character. If there's anything in the world to be proud of, the one thing you can put your boast in, the one thing you can be proud of, God says, is that you understand and know him. Because he is the Lord. In other words, he's in charge of everything. And he is the God who practices In other words, it's his character, it's his daily conduct to practice steadfast love, to practice justice, and to practice righteousness in the earth. And then he says, in these things I delight. How different our families, how different our churches, how different our country would be if... Top to bottom, we were characterized by people filled with steadfast love, with a deep hunger and commitment to justice, who loved and practiced righteousness. That would be wonderful. That would be heaven on earth. And the only person you can know for certain in the entire universe who is that all the way through, who always practices that, who has that as the very definition of who they are, is the Lord who's in charge of everything. This matters a great deal because knowing that God who exists Gives me comfort and strength in daily life. Let me tell you, and I'm done, how, this, how the rubber meets the road when it comes to understanding, doing the hard work of understanding biblical truth and then carrying it forward into your daily life. Those of you who have been here for more than three or four months know what a just a normal dirt clot of a person is speaking to you this morning. I'm subject to the same temptations, the same frailties, the same fears, the same anxieties, the same depression, the same kind of suffering that is common to all of mankind. There's absolutely nothing special about me. What is special is the God who knows me and loves me. And when I know that he practices and delights in steadfast love, when anxiety slams into me, when I am filled with fear, When I am frustrated and irritated and angry, knowing that the God who made me and loves me and sent his son after me is himself steadfast love, is complete justices, is complete justice, is filled with and defines righteousness. That gives me so much comfort and such stability. When I see evil in the world, I can pray and remember that God said that he is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, verse 11. And then I'll ask myself, I wonder why he doesn't do something. I'll remember another part of the Bible much later that says that God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, putting those two verses together... That's doctrine. To remember that God is a righteous judge who sees evil and is made indignant by it. But he is also patient and loving. And though he could act with justice at any moment, he is patient with people and he is willing to be wait on people and to work with people to see if they may yet repent and come back to him. That gives me a lot of hope. It gives me confidence in his justice and it also fills me with love and gratitude remembering that that was the story of our family. That on both sides for generations the men of my family were wicked but Jesus stepped in and changed the entire direction of our family and that apart from the grace of God I would be as my ancestors were and that the only reason I can talk to God is because he was patient not only with my grandparents but he was patient with me he was not willing that I should perish but he patiently waited showed me who he was and brought me to faith in Jesus by by his own grace and saved me that knowledge cultivated day by day scripture by scripture by putting truth together across the bible has comforted and guided me to this present day it can do the same for you if you will prayerfully person to person say god this is a little out of the box for me but i'm all in I'm going to get this simple little book. I'm going to listen to these sermons. I'm going to meet with other people. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to dedicate myself, not to knowing stuff, but to knowing you and to becoming more like you. Six weeks from now, you'll be a different person. The time spent with God, the time being taught and encouraged and corrected by His Word will make all the difference in the world. If you will begin to pursue and to love the God who pursued and loved you first, let's pray together. Could I just ask you the most important question of all? The Sunday after Easter, it's unlikely that anyone has come to church who doesn't know God for sure. But I just want to ask you are you sure? Are you entirely sure of your relationship with this God I've been talking about? If you're not, could I invite you again to hear the good news that God made you and loved you and saw you lost in sin and did everything I've just been describing to bring you back, to forgive you, to call you his beloved daughter, his beloved son, Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting other people's ideas. Turn to him and be saved, I ask you, in the name of Jesus. And if you do, just call out to him in prayer. Confess to him your sins and tell him that you want him to be your savior. And Christian, this is your your heavenly father. This is the God who made you. This is how much he loves you. Take a minute and just dedicate yourself to him and ask him to give you over the next several weeks a deeper knowledge and love for him. Father, I pray that that would be true. Thank you for the time we've spent together in your word. Thank you for being the God who not only exists but who acts and pursues fallen, broken, sinful people. Makes people, who make people like me who ignored you into your family. Calls us your sons and daughters. Calls us friends. Thank you. God, do something special in our church in these next few weeks as we study your word together. Expand our mind. Fill us, Lord, with knowledge of who you are. Not so that we would know things, but so that we would know you and love you and obey you and trust you and be made to be more like you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next few weeks, you'll, you'll just need a few companions for the journey. And I'd be glad. I'd be honored to be on the journey with you. You know how accessible I am. If you don't have my number, if you don't have my cell phone number, I'd love to give it to you after the service. I jumped in on social media when the pandemic began because I realized that's where all the people were going to be, at least for a little while. My email's in the bulletin. I'm just your fellow learner. I want you to understand that. I'm not your your father. You have a heavenly father for that. I'm just your older brother in this family of faith that we call a congregation that is Christ Church. We're in this journey together, and the journey can be hard. journey can be painful and frightening. That's why we need not only the Lord, but by the Lord's design, we also need and we are given each other. So however you reach me, feel free to, uh, to reach out. If in the next few weeks I can be of assistance to you, if you have questions, if you have prayer requests, as you dive deeper into the knowledge of the God who made you and loves you, if I can help you answer questions, help you enjoy the journey, please, please let me know. I'll be right over there. If you need to talk, if you need to pray, uh, we've apparently, all nearly all the publishers have run out of the book we're all using. It, appear- it appears that Crosspoint has uh, made a resurgence in the sales of this author who died in 1954. Okay, So his estate or whoever owns those rights must be very happy with us indeed. We're going to do whatever we can to make sure you have the book when you need it so that we can take the journey together. Give it the time, give God the attention, study prayerfully and humbly and just wait and see what God does. Love you. See you next week.